1: Richard Rhodes coming back on here for the third time, I believe to talk about Uh, your newest book, The Scientist about E.O. Wilson, which I loved, was also terrifying. But before (laughs) we do that, I think the universe is playing tricks on me.
0: I just had on a guy
1: before this uh, who's, who's studying like private equity or something in South Africa. And we were talking and uh, we started talking about kind of these Kind of these bigger meta themes of intelligence, and I brought up your book uh, about E.O. Wilson, and he goes, "Oh, I love E.O. Wilson." And I was like, "Yeah, I just read his book," and I started talking about the ants, and then I guess because it's two thirty p.m. Eastern now, I guess you had started to join the Zoom meeting like an hour ago, because as soon as I started talking about you, your name popped up on the screen, and I was like, <laughs> "I was like, that's weird." The th- the conversation goes on. You you left and I was like it must have just been a you know we got our our, our wires crossed, and I started talking about masters of death, and I was like to so uh-huh. quote Richard Rhodes again, and your name popped up again, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I started ta- and then I started talking about uh what, what uh, uh why we kill why we I, I lost why uh-huh. my- we kill yes, yeah. and he starts going yeah yeah and your name pops and I was like dude, and so we finished towards <laughs> the end. And he was like, it was great to have you. And I was like, we've got to wrap this one up because the guy I just quoted three times in this podcast, Mr. Rhodes, is actually just joined the Zoom waiting room. And he was like, I'm a huge fan of him. He doesn't know who I am. And I was like, all right. So I thought that was kind of funny. We kept talking about you, inciting you, and your name kept popping up.
0: But That's funny. I was trying to figure out, of course, I had an hour. I was an hour off when we joined.
1: Well, yeah, so that's what happened. So I thought that was kind of funny. funny. But um. Mr. Rhodes, for all the new listeners, please introduce yourself. Tell them a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, I'm a writer and have been for a good 50 years now. Published about 26, 27 books, depends on which count. Focused mostly on science history, but beneath that on the question of human violence. I don't know that Ed Wilson, this subject of my latest biography, Really fits the human violence thing, but maybe the ants do. <laughs> Ant violence is considerable, obviously, as we know. So. Terrifying. No, so that's that's me. I'm I'm a writer.
1: So this is this is, seems to be a, a wide deviation from at least the works of yours that I know. I mean, energy was a little was a little different, but I guess you know, making it the atomic bomb, dark sun, arsenals a folly, even why we kill kind of moving from i mean masters of death they not to the, you know not the least of which yeah, yeah just personal question what what led to your interest in writing in uh writing the scientists which everybody listening put it in the description it's on audible it's a fantastic listen in a way that only you can make interesting you can make atomic bombs or ants interesting what what led to what led to writing this
0: um well let's say first i have written two book length biographies the first was of John James Audubon and the other one was this of E.O. Wilson, the great world's leading specialist on the ants, who died recently, about two weeks after the book was published, sadly, at the age of 92. But the, uh, the biography of Audubon back in the 90s came about because I had just published uh, Arsenal's, sorry, um, Masters of Death, I can't remember all my titles. <laughs> Masters of Death, and it was the second or third in a sequence of pretty dark books. And my editor said, uh, maybe you should write something more <laughs> cheerful, uh, maybe a biography. He suggested. Uh, Walter Cronkite, which didn't interest me, so I raced to my library and found a that I'd written a piece for, I think, Playboy about uh, the Everglades, and had written quite a bit about Audubon there, because Audubon spent time in the Everglades. Similarly, this time around, nobody told me write about a cheerful subject, but to the contrary, I had known Ed Wilson for maybe twenty or thirty years. And we had always talked about my doing his biography. I had even sent a friend, a younger writer, to see him about maybe his writing his biography. And Ed had said, the only person I'm willing to cooperate with is Richard Groves, happily. But Ed had turned 89 when I reached the point where I was casting about for my next book. And I realized that I had better get the job done you know, men don't live always beyond their late 80s these days, which is pretty good. And Ed, really, I thought was good for another four or five years. He he uh, was going strong. He was working on what would have been a real magnum opus, a book that would be a synthesis of everything understood so far about ecology, including human ecology. Ecology, being the largest model of biology, the interrelationship of species uh, as they develop together in given environmental spaces. So, when I realized that Ed was eighty-nine and I'm no spring chicken myself,
1: nonsense.
0: <laughs> that I better get the job done. And Ed was ready, and I was ready, and my editor was ready, which is always important. Uh, You have to, you know, writing a book is a negotiation with the publishing house, assuming you want it published. So it all came together, and I'm really grateful it did because Ed wouldn't be here to cooperate. It was hard enough with the, uh, the COVID problem. I had been going back and forth to to uh, Lexington, Mass., where he lived in a retirement community regularly and sitting with him in this beautiful garden room in that that facility, talking and tape recording our interviews. And then suddenly that was all cut off Ed couldn't hear very well, even with hearing aids. And it was damned hard to interview him over the telephone. So... We pieced it together as best we could. Fortunately he's he'd written so many books himself, including several autobiographies, that I could just kind of lift material from yeah. his autobiographies and shift it over to my book. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I was gonna say towards the beginning, there's actually kind of an applicable piece of advice that I that I really like that, you know, I kinda use in for because I'm egotistical and egocentric and apparently can only think about myself. But I think about like kind of how I've tackled this podcast, right? I can go from interviewing the great Richard Rhodes to it can be me and my friends making jokes about video games and UFOs and everything (laughs) in between. But Mr. Wilson said, when you see the field where everyone's going, where all the big heads are going, where all the grant money is going, it's, it's like the gold rush. Hey, it looks great. If you truly want to do something meaningful, go in the opposite direction and do Run the other thing. way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you think that that was purely it was go the other way or do you think that also kind of intertwined in that he actually did have different interests?
0: I think a bit of both. You know, he was he was a young postdoc at Harvard, a member of a very prestigious program called the Junior Fellows who were picked out of graduate school, usually about the time they finished their doctorates, and given essentially unlimited resources for three years of original work. I mean, think about that. That's just a golden opportunity for anyone. And so, of course, he could have gone over to where everyone else was, chosen a species that would be his own, made it his special niche, and done all the things that people traditionally did. But but an opportunity arose that, that just made something really promising for him. And that was the Harvard Museum of Natural History wanted someone to go through the South Pacific now that the war was over and there was a chance that transportation was beginning to make it possible to leave from island to island by plane and collect ants. No one had ever really done a systematic collection of new species of ants across the entire sweep of the South Pacific. And they offered him this opportunity and enough money to do it well, and he jumped at the chance. And fortunately for me, again, this problem of communicating with someone late in life, how do you do that? Fortunately for me, he was about to get married. He had met this young woman whom he was totally in love with, she had been his dance instructor, although he was never able to learn how to dance. <laughs> he was a very tall, skinny, cocky guy most of his life. Uh, they were about to get married, and suddenly this opportunity came up where he'd be gone for nine months at least, and he didn't want to lose her, and she didn't want to lose him. So they made a deal that they would write each other every day yeah. for across that nine months. And when I heard that from him, I said, "I can't write your biography unless you let me read all those letters." <laughs> he consulted with Rini, uh, Irene, his wife, who was an invalid at that point in time. She died not long before he did, actually. And I guess she said, "Okay, yeah. but don't quote. Don't let him quote my letters. Just yeah. quote your letters." She told yeah. him. So he gave me all his letters, and I unfolded all these little blue blue self folding airmail envelopes and flattened them out and copied them and then had them transcribed by a professional transcriber and was able to follow him day by day because these were not simply love letters. There was a bit of that. But how do you fill a letter every day? Yeah. When I was living at the boys' home as an adolescent, I fell in love with a girl at church camp who lives 75 miles away. There was no way I could go see her because, you know, we didn't do that at this boy's home. So I wrote her a letter a day for 400 days in a row. So I knew exactly what what a goldmine and a treasure this was. So I was able to track Ed's, Daily Journal, really, is what it became, as he went from island to island in the South Pacific. In the course of that summer, he collected some thousand new species of ants that had never been named, never been recorded. He studied them. He, he did all the descriptive work that you do when you find a new species of insect. It's quite a complicated process, and it tells anyone who knows how to read the, the descriptive process what this ant is exactly like as compared to all other ants. So he did that, but he also stopped off in Australia, and then as he went home, he stopped off in Rome and to Paris and in London and look, went to the museums there looked up the various uh, ants that they had. Some of them were 150 years old, the ones in the Paris Museum. I mean... Uh, Napoleon had scientists on his various travels sweeping through the Middle East and and Europe, and they sent back species too. So Ed was able to do comparisons between and among these various species. So by the time he came back to Harvard, when everyone else was gaga over the new discovery of the structure and function of DNA, Ed had a whole field of species of ants that he could have studied for the rest of his life. he had set himself up to be an expert on a whole vast collection of ants. Quite a summer for him. And, of course, in the process, he climbed mountains. He was up in New Guinea and climbed places where no white man had ever been before. He uh, stayed on a plantation on one little island in the middle of the South Pacific that was owned by the French... Plantation operator and his wife, who were the models for the planter in uh, James Michener's South Pacific. He even met the woman who became in Michener's musical version Bloody Mary. You know the song Bloody Mary, she chews beetle nuts. That was this <laughs> woman with red teeth from chewing beetle nuts. So it was a glorious summer. And he really grew up as a scientist that summer, I think.
1: There's also that it's a very idyllic kind of picturesque, you know, he has to go on this trip and, you know, as soon as he leaves, he's already tearing up and he's writing her letters and, you know, we'll never be apart this long again. And it's, you know, it's, and you're reading this and i'm 31 and i'm single and i'm like ah oh, you know i want to find love like that one day and then like the next paragraph is like so i went to an island where they recently stopped practicing cannibalism and i was like <laughs> i was like whoa ho- hold on you're doing what and but yeah no there are all those beautiful things right and they think yeah. he, they think he's like they think he's like you know such a tough guy cuz he manages to kill a snake or whatever um now with all of that though in terms of, I, I kind of want to draw on the parallels of, because not only do you talk about it in your book, you know, kind of how COVID, and as you've talked about on this podcast, how COVID made it more difficult towards the end, and as we are still in a pandemic, for future listeners, January 25th, 2022, Yeah, yeah. talking about the that inva- that invasive ant species and how it was, uh. it, it kind of made me think of COVID. It was, they're popping up here, and then they, you know, they broke land in Australia, and But it eventually kind of seems to balance out. And I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor. But it kind of seems like there is this sort of... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC. You know, invasive everything, and you do have to have the guy that studies it, but it also kind of balances out, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, no, it does make sense. It
1: comes to an equilibrium. Uh,
0: you know, this relates to one of the most extraordinary experiences I had with it. And it was one of the days when I went out into this garden room with him and sat there with him. We were talking about his work with one of the great young uh, mathematically-oriented biologists, someone who died young early in his career, sadly, because he was one of the real originals. His name was Charles MacArthur. And he and Ed worked on what they called, in the book they wrote about it, Island Biogeography. In this case, they were actually looking at islands, uh, studying islands of various kinds. But islands are not simply mountains that stick out of the water. A piece of rainforest that's been cut off from the rest of the rainforest by agricultural development around it is an island, which is to say the species that are there can't really easily get away. Just as the species on an island can easily get away or easily come in. So they were interested about how does it balance itself out? Creatures come, find their way to a new island. Uh, There's probably going to be an island where that volcano exploded so dramatically near near, uh, Tonga recently. If it continues to build magma as it comes up, it will eventually become an island. So it's sterile when it first comes up like that. So there's nothing basically in the way of living organisms on something like that. How do they get there? How do they interact with each other? And what Ed and MacArthur put together was a mathematical picture of the interaction of Species that have arrived earlier and established their their operations on a piece of, of on an island, and then as new ones come in, the ones already there have to interact with the new ones. So it, it pulled out a handkerchief. Yeah, it gives me chills just to describe this moment. It's one of the most extraordinary things I've seen in my life. Pulled out a nice clean white handkerchief and he shook it out. Here's this square. Island, if you will. He said, now, a species arrives, maybe it flies in, maybe it floats in, however it gets there, and it climbs up on the island and establishes itself. And if the conditions are right, if there's food there and so forth, it, it sets itself up and starts reproducing and so forth. So he said, all right. So he folded one little corner of his handkerchief in, Then another species comes in and he folded another corner in. As he kept folding things, things began to overlap as they would with a multiple hilly sort of handkerchief all folded up in interfacing ways. So those represented in this beautiful image he was building. He described this as origami. And he said, typical head. I've been studying the mathematics of origami lately. Oh, to see how this, of course. Of <laughs> course.
1: Yeah, yeah, me too. I was um, thinking.
0: You, go for the, you go for the full structure. You don't just do the, the internet version, the, the Google version. You, you go and dig through the science and find how it really works. So what he was showing was, all of these species, this is ecology, in fact, and that's what he was working on at the time As he, when he died. This is the ecology of interspecies interactions. What he and MacArthur discovered was that it stabilizes over time because there are always species that are basically going extinct, meaning leaving the island one way or the other because they've been predated on and they're all gone through 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 being eaten. Or they they couldn't make it on the island, they went away again somehow. They stabilize with two curves that come together in the middle, and that middle point is their stabilization point. And it's kind of a picture of what happens now. Back to your question, your comment about Ideally, that's what happens with viruses, of course. And, well, I think the other example you were thinking about was when Ed was 13 years old, he made a discovery. He didn't report it to anybody because he was 13 years old, but but it was an authentic discovery. He was living down down on the coast of Alabama and uh, decided as a 13-year-old, I'm going to be the world's leading expert on ants because he'd already started to form that that vision, uh, to do a complete survey of a little piece of backyard next door to his, a vacant lot, basically. Do a complete survey of all the arthropods, the non-spine creatures, the insects, basically, on this little piece of land. So he found there were four species of, one kind of arthropod and two species of another. It wasn't a very big piece of land. Over in one corner, there was this mound of dirt, not very not very big, maybe a foot high, but it obviously was an ant, a mound, where there was a colony of some kind of ants, and he went over and started collecting them. He didn't collect very many because they stung, yeah. and it, it, they stung with a sting that he said felt as if you'd had, had a match in your hand, a burning match, and you touched it to your skin. And then about a day later, there would be a little pustule that would form, and then that would clean away, and then it would go away. But they were not friendly ants, and they were really quite ferocious. These were, This was the one of the first, or perhaps the first, identification in the United States of an invasion that had started some years earlier along the southern coast of the U.S., of uh, a type of ant that's native to Brazil, to the rainforest, to the uh, the plain, the, the, the low watery plains of Brazil. Fire ants, they're called. Exactly because of their bite, their sting. They had apparently come up through Uruguay and then found their way aboard a freighter that brought them to this port town in the south and then had managed to get off the freighter and started colonizing. <coughs> so it followed them off and on for the next few years when he was 18, by which time he really was something of an expert on ants. He was actually hired by the state of Alabama to write a paper about fire ants because they were starting to spread out from their point of arrival into the farmland and the pasture land of that part of the South. Well, they were a real pest, they could kill small animals by swarming them and stinging them. They would chase off any other kind of ant that might be more benevolent, and because of their and they would build these giant mounds, which made it hard to plow the land to to use the land for agriculture. They were a real problem. He found, among other things, that they were spreading out at the rate of about five kilometers a day in a kind of like a shockwave in a semicircle from their point of arrival. Well, eventually they covered the entire United States. They formed supercolonies in some places. There's a supercolony that extends all the way from near San Diego all the way up to Seattle, where I live. That's
1: disgusting.
0: (laughs) A huge supercolony. They're all genetically related. They've been checked with DNA checking, and they're they're all from the same basic group. So there they are and causing their problems along the way. Now, they're probably not going to get more benign. They're very successful, obviously, at doing what they do. There was a movement in the 60s which had managed to help scotch by the Department of Agriculture to sweep the United States with DDT and every other poisonous insecticide the Department of Agriculture could come up with to supposedly kill the fire ants, which would not have succeeded. Were. They would not have killed the fire ants. They probably would have killed every other kind of insect that was around. This was around the same time as, as Silent Spring, that famous book that kind of started the environmental movement. And Ed was someone who interacted with, uh, I've forgotten her name, who wrote that book in the last years of her life. She died of cancer shortly after that book was published. So they may not be the best example, but normally what happens with a new virus and with any kind of parasite, my fire ants aren't exactly human parasites. They only interact with us incidentally. But, of course, the kind of parasites that we get, including viruses. Normally, parasites will modify their lethality over time, evolve toward being more tolerable. Because if your host dies every time you're infested...
1: Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work. uh,
0: You know, we were able to eradicate smallpox in in the world because it happens that we're the only host for the smallpox virus. So by by killing it off, wherever it appeared, if one case emerged in a village somewhere in Africa, the smallpox teams that had been set up by the World Health Organization swept in and vaccinated everyone around for a couple miles. So this virus that this few people had acquired from wherever couldn't go anywhere. And that way they were able eventually, polio is nearly eradicated, but unfortunately polio also has animal hosts monkeys and a few others similar to human creatures. So it's harder to eradicate polio. They're getting there. So, so yes, we may hope that, that Omicron and its relatives, in fact, Omicron is a milder version evidently than the original COVID-19 that we all dealt with. How much it's gonna move in the direction of becoming just like an annual flu problem, uh, no one yet knows. And it's a really, really clever little virus that's constantly mutating. There's already a subversion of Omicron that's mm-hmm. turned up somewhere in the United States. So yeah. we're going to be living with this one way or the other for quite a while.
1: Yeah. And it. it, it uh, no, and I think those are great examples. Um, kind of like fire ants, though. It's like not only can you not blanket DDT it, but you're going to kill everything else. And you're also going to the ones that do survive. You're going to push them to be evolutionarily selected to be even more lethal and be able to be resistant to that. But again, it's kind of like the origami. Instead of just an island, it's you have the entire Earth is the island, and it includes freighters and it includes. And you could also look at the island as like a as a fourth dimension temporally. It's like well, we've been doing this for billions of years, and now all of a sudden we have cheap and accessible air travel. Well, that yeah, pushes right. it more, it folds more, there's more angles and more polygons, but eventually it does seem to kind of, like you said, find that meeting point to where it all balances out.
0: The question is how, how long is it going to take, and how many of us are going to be gone along the way?
1: Sure, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's you know <laughs> talking in the on the, the on the scales of billions of years. It's like yeah, well, whole you know whole civilizations and species vanish. It's very easy to be like yeah, it's not going to just you know going to go away. It's it's a big. I mean, thing.
0: there was a, there was a native species of fire ant in the United States, and about the first thing these invasive fire ants from. From Brazil did was wipe out the native species. It just, it wasn't prepared to deal. You know, it's the weed problem. Weeds thrive in new environments. They're, they're that kind of plant to start with. But in addition to that, uh, most of their natural predators aren't around. Uh, in Brazil, where this creature uh, evolved, there are natural predators. So it sort of occupies a certain amount of the environmental space, but doesn't overwhelm it. It's when they get out of their native environment. And as you say, with plane travel, we're seeing that with all sorts of viruses. Not just plane travel, with cutting down the forests of the world. Forests are full of uh, weird ass uh, <laughs> bugs of various kinds, many of which we don't want to encounter. You know, it was pretty standard in the.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot.
0: colonists to take over some african country they were usually good for about five years and then they succumb to one or another unknown fever that's all still there by and large <laughs> and to the extent that we think we should just own the planet and wipe out everything that's naturally in its own environment uh, we're recording recording we're disaster and i think we're slowly beginning to realize that's true
1: it kinda brings me to my next point of what uh, Mr. Wilson talked about, um sort of what we can forgive our predecessors for. There are certain, you know, forms of government or forms of warfare that maybe a you know, it was a different time. You know, World War Two is a different time than now. You couldn't sell a draft today and then go back a thousand years, you know, wholesale slaughter of villages. That was, was a different yeah. time. It was what it was you know we arrived here on boats and took over a different time there are certain things that you can forgive now repeated you know if they start setting up concentration camps again we're gonna be like, no no, no, no. they tried that no good but <clears throat> what mr wilson says is <clears throat> excuse me the those are things that not to make light of you know the death of tens or hundreds of millions of people but they can relatively kind of, quote-unquote, be restored, right? Our, our lifespan is only so many decades before you kind of get this rebirth with every couple of generations, the entire world is replaced. But things like biodiversity, where it takes millions of years to even just different ants or different trees or different whatever, that diversity and the resilience of that diversity, that's not something you can just, you know, you can – You can build an ugly house and then knock it down and go, I forgive him, let's build a better one. But if you clear, you know, a whole shorefront of foliage, it's like if you want those oak trees back, it's going to take two centuries.
0: Ed was concerned, particularly beginning around the 1980s. It had been assumed in biology without anyone, I guess, really doing the necessary research so we were losing, we, uh, the world, we were losing about one species a year yeah. to extinction. Yeah. But a more recent set of studies in the 80s and 90s concluded that in fact, it was more like one a day. And when Ed really grasped that idea, he realized that, that we had to get moving. We had to do something about saving, uh, not the environment so much because as you said, and as he said, it only takes maybe a 100 years to regrow a rainforest. But if a species that lived in that rainforest is goes extinct because of whatever, it took millions of years for that species to evolve. It's never coming back. Yeah. So to the extent that we are reducing the number of species in our environment, we are depopulating and increasing the poverty of the envi- entire human world that we live in. Those are species, he pointed out that, that we only, there, were, there are about 10 million species in the world, a, a reasonable estimate that's been made. And of these, we know, I think, fewer than one or two million, uh, at least not more than five or six we don't even know the names of the other species. We haven't given them names yet. We don't know their behavior. We don't know their environment. They haven't been identified. So he tried to find ways to move people toward thinking about saving with the species that we have already, rather than letting them deplete to the point where we begin to lose all the benefit. I mean, a, a homely example, there's only one commercial species, species of banana in the world. Yeah. Every banana you eat is the same species that's been generated by, by banana companies as their ideal, and that's the one we get. If that thing is ever hit by a real disease, we're going to have to start over. We're going to have to once again uh, domesticate the banana. Well, there are lots of wild bananas around, but if you don't know what they are, where they are, and so forth, you're gonna be stuck with no bananas in the world. I don't know whether anyone cares. (laughs) I eat a banana every day myself. (laughs) But my point is, these are untold riches for human use, and they also maintain the planet's uh, balance, ecologically speaking. If you get rid of enough of them, if you let them fade away, then you're going to be stuck with a world that doesn't have everything it needs. And that became his campaign from around 1980 to the end of his life. He tried to get the U.S. government to invest in educating 50,000 biologists a year. And he almost had it until some senator said, uh, what's this about? Crazy scientists. And threw the bill out. Then he had to go back and start over. And he, he uh, worked on... The next idea was to begin the identification process by pulling it all together in one place. And the internet had come along by then. And he began what is now a thriving enterprise called the Encyclopedia of Life. Every species known it has one page at least online in the encyclopedia of life if anyone who's listening this wants to check it out they just can type in encyclopedia of life our species is there which is kind of funny because it's identified just like a bug or, or a bird or whatever uh and every other species that's so far been put into this collection. Some of them have multiple, multiple links into all sorts of scientific documentation. Some only have the basics. But there was a wonderful place to develop his idea of, of at least we've got first to identify them. He liked to say if a Martian landed on Earth, first thing, it would do would be to do a species survey, mm-hmm. find out what was here. Mm-hmm. We haven't mm-hmm. even done that for our own planet yet. From that evolved a whole set of textbooks for high school and college students, the E. O. Wilson Biology Series, and another way, which is which is digital, not simply paper books. I think there are paper books, but it's also digital. And it connects into the Encyclopedia of life. So the the net effect, hopefully, is to stir the whole rich complex of educational institutions in the world to participate in this ongoing process of identifying and thereby hopefully beginning the process of preserving uh, the many species that are still left. I think about the ocean. There, there are so many species in the ocean that have never been identified. How often do we get a news bullet saying, oh, we found a new species in the world. Recently, there was a huge, terrifying centipede that was found in the deep ocean. Oh, God. I'm rather afraid of centipedes. This thing was big enough to eat a small shark. <laughs> Talk about nightmares, Gee. you know. And, and the whole problem of oxygenation, which is one of the reasons insects are small. They don't have lungs, so they have to breathe through that hard skeleton they have around them. Uh, this thing solved that problem by being in the water because the water is much more easily transportable in and out of its of its exoskeleton. So it grew quite large, and you can see it if you want to look it up. If you want nightmares, those are the nightmares.
1: I am no longer a fan of E.O. Wilson. I think we need to I think we need to drastically reduce the number of species on this planet. That's disgusting. That's, that's uh. disgusting. But, you no, know, it does make sense. But then also, I mean, if you just want to look at it, not even from, you know, because I think what well, it was during, like, the Reagan administration where it was the whole government bad thing. So some that maybe has a predisposition to look at this and go, oh, we don't need it. This is just more, you know, gobble- scientific gobbledygook. You could also just look at it from a human-centric standpoint. A lot of cures for illnesses could be laying right out there in the bi- the silk of a spider, the antenna of an ant, the what at the droppings of a turtle. There might be the cure for dementia or or cancer, and we're about to bulldoze a thousand square yards in the Amazon so we can. And what did Mister Wilson say? You know, we replace it for a couple of years of like you know yeah. mildly successful cattle raising, right? We're getting right. a couple Big Macs out of what could be the cure for leukemia.
0: Well, I think most people probably don't realize that antibiotics generally are discovered in funguses yeah. and other organisms in the natural world. Nature is much better at combining stuff and kind of seeing what comes out that works. I mean, that's the way evolution works. You get, you get mutations in the DNA when it copies itself to make an a, a offspring, just as when you're writing something, you can make a spelling mistake. Mm-hmm. The DNA makes spelling mistakes. That mutation then is subjected that in the natural impression. course of things to uh, to what Darwin called natural selection. Does it survive? Does it thrive? Does it work better than whatever was there before? If so, then it, then it increases and takes up rather the way interest is earned on a, on a checking account or an account in a bank, it slowly takes over that particular group and, and on from there. So this is an enormous treasure house. And the only one we have, we're not going to find it on Mars. Mm-hmm. We're not going to find a bunch of interesting funguses on Mars that include a new penicillin. Or whatever we we really need to have, we're going to find it in this world, if we find it anywhere, and we're not going to find it if we if we desertize if you will the whole human whole natural world around us
1: it looks like what you said towards the end of the book, we're not going to escape this world on a bunch of shiny white rockets and find uh, a new one we might we might some people might go to Mars we're not finding another Eden, not anytime soon, not one that's been made for us and that we've evolved from it and with it it's right here it's so much easier to it's so much easier to restore the old skyscraper than it is to demolish it remove all the rubble and put in a new building right and that's what we have right here and he even talks about that right just going in and what are the estimates they use where they they'd shoot the thing over the canopy in the jungle and it would come back down what could you explain that
0: uh are you thinking of the collecting in the jungle or yes. are you thinking of the way they covered islands?
1: No, no, no. I think it was the collecting where they'd shoot like a, what was it, like a string or something or what was it? Did I didn't completely misinterpret it? They shot something up in like a densely. Yeah, no, the
0: idea was how do you how do you get to the top of rainforest to collect the yeah. many many species that live up there? Because if you want to climb up the tree, the tree is covered with various stinging insects and yeah, and yeah. snakes and every other kind of dangerous creature. You can't really climb up the tree. And and you know you how do you do that? So what they discovered they could do was just fire something up in the tree that would shake the top of the tree, and put put collecting sheets on the down on the ground that would collect whatever fell down, and then they could study what was up at the top of the tree down where they were. So that was a process of studying what was in the rainforest. There are of course rainforest areas where there are complete treetop systems that have been laid kind of like the ones that were you that you can uh, go up on in some places like i did one in in australia where you ride a little little rail with a sling over your you know you've seen those yeah you can get you can do that but but easier and and much less difficult in terms of just the environment was to do it at the bottom of the tree yeah, yeah. and that was one of the ways they studied we lived in the top of the rainforest trees one of the wonderful things that Robert MacArthur did his first major paper as a young graduate student was to go out to a place where there were three different species of a particular kind of bird that lived in the same pine tree and the question was, How did they coexist in the same tree? Why didn't they chase each other off? And he studied them very carefully over a period of time and discovered that one species lived in the top third of the tree and on the outer branches and collected its bugs there. Uh, the next species lived in the middle third of the tree tended to be more toward the inner branches of the tree. And the third species lived on the bottom third of the tree and collected on the lower branches and on the ground. So they had created for themselves these little mini-niches, environmentally speaking, where they didn't compete directly with each other and were then able to share all the bounty of these individual trees. These trees <laughs> 40, 50, 60 feet tall, there was plenty of insect life in the, for these 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 birds to to live on. Some of them were more good at chasing the, the, the insects off when they flew away and so forth. It was a beautiful, beautiful study of how, how intricately interconnected the entire natural world is. Yeah. We don't yeah. see it because we're big lumbering apes that walk around kind of looking at each other Mm -hmm. mostly (laughs) but there is an enormous collection at every different level from from bears on down to to the smallest kind of insects that you can't even see uh, operating all around us all the time all sorts of things live on our skin in our noses in our ears Uh, it's kind of A little icky sometimes to think about how much is crawling around on us, but it's there too. There are little, 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 tiny, tiny, and almost invisible bugs that live on our sheets and feed on the the dead skin that falls off of our bodies. I mean, what a world! Yeah, I like to think of the natural world as fractal, Mm -hmm. which is to say, equally complicated at every level, from the smallest to the largest. And for me, as simply someone who enjoys the natural world, I'm not a scientist, I'm a writer, it means that there's never any end to what you can discover and learn. You can always be surprised, you will always be fascinated if you just keep your eyes open and chase it down a little bit. There's a wonderful book I remember from from adolescence that was about how there's a complete world in your backyard. You can go out and spend months in your backyard. Just something like what Ed did with that next door vacant lot survey, but maybe a little less dangerous than with fire ants in it.
1: (laughs) I remember taking evolutionary biology in college. I think it was C-Bio 3000 in, must've been 2011, 2012. And, uh, the professor talking about like anywhere you are like oh we're in georgia like no we need to go to the rainforest like no 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 we can yeah. we need to go to the woods no we can go outside this building and see that yeah. just patch of manicured lawn go there <clears throat> let's measure a cubic meter we could spend we could all do research for the rest of our lives on the variation the genetic drift the bottlenecking the mutations the uh the altruistic that's one thing i'm glad you touched on i've brought it up a lot on this podcast uh, the ge- genetic altruism like all these little things are just right there and it's kind of like uh you know it's like the, that beautiful kind of blend of like philosophy and 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 uh astronomy that carl sagan could do einstein could do neil, yeah. neil degrasse yeah. tyson can do to the whole yes yeah, he yeah. could do it with biology in the way they did it with you know when you move when you move your hand you are technically moving the farthest star in the universe at an infinitesimal distance, but you are everything we do, every atom tugs on every other atom. In that way, there's nothing you can do. We exist in the biological, I mean, me, depends on, you know what, do I fill up this water bottle three times or do I throw it away after drinking it once? Okay, there's backwash, there is something in here that's never existed before and everything is just sort of dancing in this cascade and man, it starts to make you realize that we're not like we are special, but like, we're not in that like planet earth doesn't, does not need humans. The biosphere does not need us. And if we keep wiping everything out, we're going to Darwinian select ourselves right out of here because the ape that removes every bacteria that could save the ape's life. That's,
0: we you know, we've come to a crisis point right now. No question about it. Sure. The global global heating, as I call it now, because yeah. yeah. it's come to that, is it's a real phenomenon whenever people care to think about it.
1: Doesn't matter. You just
0: have thinking. to look at the measurements yeah. to know that. Yeah. And it's making changes that are going to affect are affecting all of us in very dramatic ways. Mm. Uh, and let's face it, sooner or later, another asteroid is going to come in.
1: Oh, it's coming.
0: It's <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a popular subject these days, I notice, one way or the other. I was impressed that the, the movie Don't Look Up actually s- took the bullet. Yeah. Had it hit. Nope. Well, normally people... S- Normally, we brilliant humans save the world at the last moment, but I think that was much closer to reality than going out and blowing it up with atomic bombs. So. We, we
1: can't take on a we can't take on a coronavirus. In what world do people think we're going to stop a, a granite rock the size of Manhattan coming in at Mach seven <laughs> hundred? It's not happening, man. It's not the the asteroid out there with our. I've interviewed a lot of like special forces guys and Delta force guys. And they always talk about, it. they're like the bullet that's a lot of them will like, carry a bullet and they'll write their name on it so that yeah. they ha- they have the bullet with their name on it. So, yeah, so he can't funny. find them,
0: yeah.
1: man. But they say, you know, you can be the most elite sniper in the world. The bullet that takes you out might not hit you. It might hit a tree that ricochets off a rock and something hits you in the neck and you bleed out. They always yeah. say that the bullet out there. It has your name on it and wherever it is, and it's coming or it's not. The asteroid out there's an asteroid somewhere, maybe in the Oort cloud, just kinda of maybe it's hiding behind the sun. There's <laughs> something out there with it just it's it's written on Sharpie, it just says Earth. It's coming. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, I'm right, so. Yeah. Well, so when Ed came to toward the end of his life, really the last ten years, let's say was the idea, he called it half-Earth. The idea was that we should try to preserve what's left of wilderness in the world. He framed it as we could live on half of the Earth's surface. We don't need the entire Earth's surface to to maintain a steady-state world in which we could live comfortably, well-fed, well-clothed, happy, and so forth. Uh, assuming that we control our population, which has, is happening. People who were had heard about the population explosion 30 years ago still think that this population is going to continue to grow. Actually, since it's a function basically of the education of women, and of the ability to raise children to adulthood without losing nine-tenths of them before you do. Population explosion has already turned around. We're going through the transition, and it looks now as if the world population will level off by 2100 at about 10 billion people. We could have a steady state world with about half the world's growing surface nearby, and the rest could be left to wilderness. So Ed's half-earth idea was we keep what's already around and restore what we can. For example, if there are pieces of wilderness that are disconnected by development in between, it turns out that if you can give a pathway between the two parts, a wilderness pathway, a sort of a a connector, that the critters will move back and forth on the pathway, provided it's safe to do so. And it becomes as if it's a larger area. So we can reconnect a lot of what's already there and let that continue to develop in its Darwinian natural way and and, and use it for our, what he called biophilia. He believed there was a natural instinctive, evolutionarily developed love of nature in all of us. I don't know if that's true. But for many of us, certainly, we feel better when we're out in the natural world than we do sitting in an apartment or a house somewhere in a concrete building. So he did certainly catch that feeling in his book, Biophilia. Uh, Keep it for recreation. Keep it for the possibility of finding new practical materials from it including those important antibiotics, continued to catalog and what he called, finish the, uh, oh, I'm blacking on the name, who was the Linnaean project of identifying and naming and characterizing all of the species in the world. So he saw this as a kind of future and he thought we'd probably get past. He became really quite optimistic in the last years of his life. He saw the species as finding its way through these potential bottlenecks. Uh, the population explosion were already turning around. Well, he thought we'd probably get a handle on global heating. And I, I don't see how we cannot, because if we don't, <laughs> bye-bye human beings. Yeah. Uh, and, and he thought one by one we would take care of these things. But then there was a the little catch at the end, which people who read him are sort of taken aback by. He was not naturally an optimist. He was really a tragedian. He saw the human species condition as essentially tragic. And by that, he meant, in his case, and he writes this at the beginning of his wonderful book on human nature, which I recommend to your listeners. says, they're gonna read one book of Ed Wilson's, that's the one to read, won a Pulitzer Prize. It's kind of a popular version of his book, uh, Sociobiology. And what he says there is, when we get through all of these challenges, And 200 years down the road, when we've done all these things and we're good, solid, we're going to reach a point where we begin to realize that there's no larger purpose to our existence than the reproduction of our kind, just like all the other Darwinian species in the world, all the other species in the world. And that's going to be a spiritual crisis, just as Darwin proposing that we're not really special creations of God, but creatures, animals that evolved across the, the, the eons, just as all the other creatures did. A problem that still plagues fundamentalist religion today. Darwin is still not quite acceptable, not indeed acceptable at all yeah. to a lot of different religious groups in, in America and elsewhere. Before that, There was the Copernican discovery that the sun doesn't go around the earth. The earth isn't the center of the universe with all the stars and suns revolving around it. It's just another planet circulating around a minor sun way out at the edge of of the, the Milky Way galaxy. That was a crisis. And Copernicus and Galileo got in real trouble with the church over that. Then Darwin came along and found us as, not a separate creation. Now we're at a point where Wilson sees the potential down the road for the real realization that we don't even have some transcendent, transcendent purpose beyond our own reproduction. What do we do then? It's going to be... Uh, I
1: I think yeah. I may be more of an optimist than him. in that I think... <laughs> you with, might have some purpose. I wouldn't even say that. I would say maybe there is. I don't know. I would say that it doesn't make you know you have that realization that oh the earth is round or you have the realization that oh we came from apes who came from shrews who came from sea sludge whatever you have the realization that we're not the center of the that, you know car yeah you're right we're a tiny planet around an insignificant star in in a rather unexciting part of a rather uninteresting galaxy man sure you dwell on it too much but does does that make does that make watching a snowstorm any less beautiful? Does that make it any more special that like I get to interview you, one of my favorite authors? Does that make I've recently started playing I'm 31 for the first time ever, I'm playing online video games and I'm playing it with my <laughs> friends. and I'm like a kid on Christmas. I'm having so much fun. I'm laughing till I'm purple in the face. and on Thursday nights, I order some pizza, maybe some taco Bell and some beer. Whether we're the center of the universe? Or whether there's some transcendent arc to man. Hey man, a cold beer and a taco?
0: <laughs>
1: is there any I mean, is there anything better than helping I, I out a friend? Great, is there anything I better than be great, donating money to Salvation Army? Is there anything better I, than
0: that? I you know, I think that so much of those structures, those giant structures of vision that people had, were a result of how much they didn't know. Yes. And of course they were. Uh, yes. As you know more, I would hope that you become a little more humble in the world. Yes. And that really is the trend of that that picture I just drew of, of the way people have, humans have discovered one after another where their limits are. My favorite scientist, and uh, Wilson certainly is one of them, but my all-time favorite is Niels Bohr. Bohr was a Danish physicist and Nobel laureate and uh, second only to Einstein, really, in the depth of his understanding and, excuse me, yeah, you're <laughs> discovery fine. about the world. He liked to say, and it sounds so innocent, he liked to say the purpose of science isn't power over nature. The purpose of science is the gradual disillusion of prejudice. Yeah. And if you think about Copernicus, to Darwin, and then... Wilson and so forth, that's really what they were doing. They were saying, well, it's very nice to think that we're only a little lower than the angels, but is the evidence otherwise? We're just another creature in the big, wonderful mix of creatures in this world, and so forth. So the gradual removal of prejudice turns out to be like the, 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 absolute solvent that you can't find a bottle that will hold Mm -hmm. it just melts everything away (laughs) so so here and but in the end i would hope that where we would be is exactly what you said we drink a beer and watch a beautiful sunset that's what i mean about i think nature is fractal you're never going to get to the bottom of it however far down you go there's farther yet and, and down yeah. at the very bottom and the old the old story, well, it's turtles the rest of the way yeah, down yeah uh, <laughs> so, so so there's plenty to do. there's plenty to think, there's plenty to feel. there's much to love. and we don't live that long anyway. We're yeah. sort of fireflies in the universe so i was uh,
1: I was talking to a, a friend from college this past weekend, and uh, she kind of brought up a point that I hadn't. Br- I've told you before, I talk about all this time on a podcast, 2014, I lost a brother to suicide. So, I mean, in that sense, I also kind of do identify with E.O. Wilson losing his father. But a huge thing for me has always been to make sure his death wasn't in vain and how I wanted to always have this grand plan about how I was going to fix mental illness and how I was going to do this and do that. And, you know, everyone kind of smiles and nods. Like, yeah, that's a nice thing to do. And to me, I'm just like, yeah, do it in my brother's name. But I was talking to this, this girl and she was like, You know, there's also nothing wrong with, like, accepting what happened. Sure, like, maybe trying to bring awareness to it. But it doesn't make his death any more or less in vain for you to just go and live your life. Like, you don't need to dedicate it. Hey, if you come across a million dollars, sure, maybe that's your legacy. You donate it. You don't need to go and turn it into this lifelong odyssey. Because there's just another problem behind that. And that was very profound to me, and yeah. um, it also kind of made me think, though, just along what you're saying. Ironically enough, yeah, these big grand plans—I want this and I want that—and we're going to build this structure. Or we're going to have an, a population on the moon and limit. Those are because you you don't have like a, a cute dog or a girlfriend or a child, right? And granted, that that's just an opinion, but ironically enough if we start to realize that there is no grand arc and we just kind of, Hey man, donate to the homeless shelter, you know, whatever. And we start living our lives with the beer and the taco. I would bet that over the course of a million years, we will probably actually end up creating the utopia that the unhappy guy was trying to build.
0: Yeah, maybe so.
1: And we wouldn't even care. We'd be like, Oh cool. Utopia.
0: You're really talking about survivor guilt.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah I think so. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, you know, let's face it, there's room for, for both. Sure. I mean, Fermi lost a brother, a beloved brother, when he was about 14. And it turned him in the direction of wanting to quantify everything. Yes. He wanted to put a number on everything. Mm-hmm. It's as if he couldn't bear the loss of that brother. yeah whom he loved very much. I don't remember how the brother died, probably a disease of that time of place. And ever after, Fermi was someone who would, who would do the numbers on whatever he was thinking about, almost as if it was a way of saying, I can't bear those feelings. Yeah. I'd rather quantify them. But it also gave him a basis for becoming a really great physicist yeah. who made many major discoveries. So it can go however you want it to go. Yeah. What it hopefully doesn't go to is is ultimately sadness and depression and or meanness and cruelty. Yeah. That of course happens a lot as well. And there's some certain connection between grandiosity of project, I think, and and the, the desire for power, which is can turn out often to be a very evil thing in the world. I think I mean who who do we know who was constantly told by his father that he was an absolute stupid idiot? Uh, he became president in, 19, in 2016. <laughs> yeah. And he spends his time telling other people they're stupid idiots. Yeah. He's personally responsible, according to one recent estimate, for at least 130,000 COVID deaths from this unwillingness to confront the infection early enough along the way while he had personally been vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to go there, but I just say that as an example of how. How off track too much focus on grandiosity could lead to
1: or even as you said in uh, uh Masters of death, I mean, look what happens when when your dad beats the shit out of you every day and yeah. and you and you want to build the global Teutonic Reich yeah, look what That's happens like, like what if what if he had just had a dog and gotten married and it was obviously I mean he was born into that. I'm not making light of that. But no, no. what you were saying about even for me, survivor's guilt is like sure, I don't think it means like, okay, now don't do anything. It's like, well, no, sure, it's something that touched me and if I am, God bless, am in the position one day to where I could maybe, you know, make like a donation to the National Institutes of Mental Health. Sure. But don't don't not enjoy the sunset and the beer and the taco. Yeah. And it's
0: uh Well I don't think psychology has begun to track the life patterns that people fall into. I told you in an earlier conversation, every scientist I've ever studied had some formative experience as a young person, usually before they were 12, that focused them on the scientific kind of track for the rest of their lives. With Fermi, it was the loss of his brother. With Einstein, it was kind of terror as a little boy at four or five of magnetism and the sun and forces that seem to operate without any levers, magnetism being one of the most obvious that we live with every day and I think most people don't even think about, it. but good Lord, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Pick something up and have it pulled out of your hands yeah. by by this invisible <laughs> force floating around. And so forth. I mean, so people's lives are directed more than I think most people realize their childhood experiences. And I don't mean that in a simple way at all. But I mean, there's no question that my experience with my mother's suicide when I was an infant and not having a mother, my experience with a really brutal stepmother who starved and beat my brother and me until we ended up fortunate at a benevolent children's home, directed me toward an absolute obsession with understanding human violence. Yeah. And so much of my books have been about that. Yeah. Even Ed had his experiences of, of living at least in a neglectful world, if not a physically brutal world. And that neglect led him to spend a lot more time alone and out in the woods or on the seashore than most of us ever do. And it formed him, along with the accident of losing an eye to a, a fish spine, tearing his cornea, uh, and the accident of having a genetic problem with hearing that made him hard of hearing set him up to to be interested in the natural world, to choose the kind of species that he could deal with. He liked birds, but you couldn't deal with birds if you don't have binocular vision. You can't figure out how far away they are. He He ended up focusing with his one good and very good eye on small things. And he chose the ant. And he became the world's leading specialist on ants, the men who figured out how ants communicate with each other, leaving little pheromone trails around that they can smell and follow. Uh, all of this, in a way, I mean, it doesn't exist explain it all doesn't cover all the ground but it sort of predisposed him and he understood that he wrote about to go in one direction rather than another so we all have this experience and those who think they don't ought to go back and look again because they'll find it that much i'm sure of and it's why biology or rather biography is such an interesting subject
1: I was going to say, I can tell you
0: the same story about Audubon. He had a formative childhood experience that sent him off to the woods to look at birds.
1: I think that we might have to save that for the next episode. Yeah. It's, right. Well, I was going to say uh, real quick is, you know, in terms of that sort of that infinitely fractal relationship between every ant here and every leaf in China and every coral and wherever is even just kind of thinking about E.O. Wilson's journey, you know, your journey to understand human violence, to to taking a break from it and writing about the ant guy, to me having this conversation with you. And now you two, both my senior by almost 60 years, are now helping me kind of get through my own mental struggles with losing a sibling eight years ago it is that infinite fractal of it's all connected.
0: Yeah. And this again is Ed's handkerchief.
1: Yes, the Holding origami. Over
0: all these wonderful ways. Yeah. As we interact with each other and change accordingly.
1: And we're all part of the same handkerchief.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's. Well, this was an hour long commercial for everyone to go buy the scientist on audible. You've been duped. It was an infomercial you've been duped you got had by me and Mr. Rose Would you like to do uh that book next, or do you have another book that you would like to do next, or am I getting too far ahead of myself and assuming that you're gonna do my podcast a fourth time?
0: It <laughs> was fun talking with you um. Which do you want? I'll have to think about what – I've got plenty of books. Why don't you look through my list and see if there's something that interests you? Okay. And we can pick it up. We could do Audubon. We could talk about – I think we've already talked a bit about Masters of Death. Uh, we could talk about the current situation with nuclear weapons in the world. Uh, there are lots of possibilities
1: i would i would like i would like the, current... the, the
0: energy book which i don't think we've discussed ever. we have
1: not i have read that oh. though and i really liked yeah. it yeah I, that read, yeah I read that before i started the podcast Yeah, yeah. No, I just I read that because I liked it. I thought it was hilarious where they'd use the the fire to light the the gas veins and blow guys over treetops, and it was just kind of comical. It's like acme, like Wiley Coyote and stuff. And four
0: hundred years of of energy development. uh, I was just delighted and fascinated with all the stories I found. I think no one had collected all that stuff together before, so it really was a piece of totally original research by and large.
1: I think we might have to do energy. Yeah,
0: let's think about that for next time.
1: Okay. And or as always or you can just text me and tell me which one you want to do. But with yeah. that, I will text you when this episode is up. Mr. Rhodes, thank you again for coming on here. It's thank been-
0: you. Thanks to all your listeners. Yeah.
1: It's it's a pleasure yeah. talking to you. And I'll put your website, the Audible, all the good stuff. It's all in the description. <laughs> go find it. Go get the book, E.O. Wilson. It's
0: the circle bigger and bigger and bigger, yeah. which
1: is fabulous. Bigger and bigger and bigger. And I purposely <laughs> left out that autonomous group of ants because that was nightmare fuel. And maybe we'll kick off the next episode with that. But you brought up the giant centipede, so that's enough nightmare fuel for one episode anyone curious about what I'm talking about, you can go get the book and listen to it. It's nightmare fuel. And with that, Mr. Rhodes, thank you so much, sir. God bless. God bless everybody. Stay safe out there Till next time.